Hi, this is Jennifer Edwards. You may remember me as Miss Kyle from Star Trek The Next Generation, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. This week on the show, we're talking to some more Hollywood royalty because we've got Jennifer Edwards on the podcast today. Now, you Trekkies out there might know Jennifer Edwards from her appearance on Star Trek The Next Generation as Miss Kyle, who is the character that Jennifer played on the season five episode of that series, Higher Ground. That's the episode where Alexander Roshenko officially comes to live with Worf on the Enterprise Hi, Jinx and Sue, and Jennifer Edwards plays the teacher who has to deal with this pair of Cleons who do not get along yet at all. Beyond Star Trek, Jennifer's story goes pretty far back because she is from a very famous Hollywood family. In fact, her father was Blake Edwards, and her stepmother was Julie Andrews. Now, if you don't know who either of those names are, you are either very, very, very young or have been living under a rock for a long, long time. I don't quite know which one it's going to be, but if you haven't heard of these folks, you should. And if you don't know, you're going to learn all about both of them today. Jennifer has had the pleasure of working with a lot of very, very well-known, very prolific actors through her career. And surprisingly, I found there were a ton of Star Trek connections scattered throughout her entire resume. Jennifer's paths have crossed with some Star Trek mainstays like William Shatner and Denise Crosby, but also many really excellent guest stars, including Gene Simmons and a bunch of others we're going to talk about today. And as it turns out, some of those folks were in fact guests on this very podcast. So in other words, that's a shameless plug that by the time you're done listening to this week's show, you might want to go back in time and check out some of those earlier episodes to hear some of their stories, and oddly enough, how some of them actually correlate to this episode. Jennifer has some awesome stories that I think you're going to really enjoy hearing very much about her, about her life, about her parents and all about her time on Star Trek, and a little bit more about Miss Kyle, because there's actually a much deeper story to Miss Kyle than you might think there is. This episode is no shot in the dark, so go ahead, sit back, and enjoy this chat with Jennifer Edwards. But before we start talking to this week's guest, I want to remind you guys to make sure you are following Trek Untold on all forms of social media. You can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Trek Untold, and that's one word, Trek Untold, no spaces in between. That's the best way to stay up to date on who our guests are for the week, learn all about them before the show begins, and check out all the random memes I post, because yeah, I do a lot of that too. If you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon member. Head over to patreon.com slash trekuntold to see all the different ways you can help financially at different contribution levels. Some of the perks include early access to the episodes, having the chance to ask guests questions, and hopefully some more stuff that I'm going to figure out pretty soon. It is easily the best way to directly connect with me, as well as to meet other fans of this show. If you're looking to buy some Trek Untold merchandise, don't worry, that's going to be coming very soon. If you prefer to check out the video version of this podcast, head over to youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, where every Sunday I post these episodes in video format, which includes a lot of images and video from the guests I were talking to. But the most important thing you can do to help support this show is please leave us ratings and reviews if you're checking us out on iTunes, on Spotify, or other audio platforms that allow you to leave reviews and ratings, or by subscribing to our YouTube channel, as well as giving our Trek Untold videos thumbs up, likes, and comments. All these interactions help push our podcast to the very top of these different platforms to make sure more Star Trek fans can find us. It costs you nothing to do other than a few moments of your time, so please, if you haven't done that already, consider doing so. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. 
And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the screen, we've got Jennifer Edwards. Jennifer, how are you today? I'm good, Matthew. How are you? I'm doing all right. It's so great to talk to you today. And I like the uh, the paintings I've seen in the background, too. That's some nice work oh. back there. Is that yours? Well, my dad, well, the two on the side are ones that I did, but my dad did this one, the big one. Oh, very nice. Yeah. He was an incredible painter and sculptor. and Yeah. Well, we're going to jump right into that. And, you know, I, I got to say, I have a ton of things here I want to talk to you about in particular, because you have a lot of Star Trek connections throughout your career that we're going to discuss. I don't know even if you're aware of some of those, which is going to be fun to chat about. But sure. uh, let's kick things off here with the question I like to ask all my guests first. And uh, Jennifer, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching it? Were you a fan of the show? Oh, yeah, definitely. The first, Yeah, the original Star Trek. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, one of the connections that you might be referring to because i just re realized it was i did a movie of the week with william shatner was that what, go ask alice was that one of the that's ones one of them yep <laughs> okay yeah yeah so um and i and bill hadn't done he hadn't even done start started star trek yet so when i heard about the show and that he was on you know starring in it that made me want to watch it yeah, we're going to talk about Go Ask Alice a little bit later on, as well as a few other things here. But uh, sure. let's talk a little bit about your background, because this is really interesting. I'm very curious to hear a lot about this. Uh, so I already mentioned your dad, in fact. But the question is going to be, uh, tell us where you grew up, who your parents were, and what little Jennifer wanted to be when she grew up. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Well, my dad was a director named Blake Edwards. Uh, my real mother was uh, Patricia Walker. She was an actress as well. Um, I was born in LA in Los Angeles when my parents divorced, um, my mom moved myself and my brother to London. Uh, my father then was, um, soon to marry his next wife, who's still my stepmother and that's Julie Andrews. And, um, so I would go, I would actually go back and forth from London to LA when, you know, school breaks or, or you know, whatever. But I returned to Los Angeles when I was about 16 because I was working. I started working as an actress when I was 10 years old, which is, I didn't realize that that's what I wanted to do until I did it. <laughs> and then I wanted to be an actress and knew I wanted to be an actress. So, um, you know, the place to be basically was Hollywood. Yeah, you know, we have to mention too. I mean, obviously, folks know the name Julie Andrews. They should know the name Blake Edwards. Uh, but really, the Edwards family—it's some you know, real, real true royalty. And I mean, I feel like I'm talking to royalty right now because the Edwards family is a generational Hollywood family, isn't it? Yes, my youngest daughter is fifth generation in in Hollywood. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, what is the lineage, and like, where, where does uh, where does part one begin? My, <laughs> my great grandfather was a silent film director. He directed um, the original Cleopatra and numerous silent films. And then my grandfather was a first assistant director and a production manager. Um, and then my dad and then me <laughs> um, and then my youngest daughter, uh, Hannah. I mean, even Drew Barrymore, I think, you know, she's only third generation. I don't I don't know anybody who's like fifth generation in Hollywood. I have to ask, you know, if you go to the doctor and they try and take your blood, do they just get like film negatives come out of you and not <laughs> any actual, uh, any red? Yeah, as long as it's not black and white. <laughs> yeah, then there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, a little bit about growing up with Blake Edwards. Uh, you know, I, just, just think about that name and 
that's amazing. Um, you know, the, the work he's done is so amazing. He's such a prolific filmmaker. Uh, for folks who are, may, not, may not be familiar with the name, which if they're not, what's the problem there? Um, but, you know, we, we're talking about movies like Breakfast at Tiffany's, the Pink Panther series, Victor Victoria, just to name a few. Uh, and he also got you, in fact, your very first acting role at a very young age. No, actually, he didn't. Um, he, uh, my first role was, was in a movie called Heidi. I played Heidi. Oh, Heidi um, was first. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. um, yeah, he, so, I mean, he signed off on it when I got the role, he said I could do it. <laughs> but again, he had nothing to do with it. Okay. I was curious. And cause I guess chronologically, I got a little bit confused here. Cause I know uh, you also did film uh, days of wine and roses, which is directed by you know, actually that that's not me. And I'm not sure why that incorrect? I, oh, I, okay. I tried to get that off my IMDB. There's a little girl in days of wine and roses, but that wasn't me. Um, in fact, um, the little girl was already like three or four years older than me at the time. I think I was just maybe a year old or something. So yeah, that's not me. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for clarifying that. And I got to tell you, you know, this isn't the first time we've heard IMDb has screwed something up. It's just however it happens, it happens. But uh, it's always good to actually get the truth now. So yeah, glad it's out there. Well, there you go. Yeah. yeah, so um, I mean, yeah, I do want to talk about Heidi, but I want to ask a few other questions before we got into that. Um, sure. And in particular, you know, again, we're talking about this household that you're growing up in, and you know, I'm a Pink Panther fan, uh, so I'd just love to know if you have any stories about being around Peter Sellers so you could tell us. Well, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I I grew up with his kids as well. In fact, Michael, his son, was sort of my first serious boyfriend when I was 13. My dad first started working with Peter. I was probably about five years old. And um, that was the first, um, that was actually shot in the dark. No, it was the first, oh, I can't remember. Yeah, no, shot in the dark. And technically shot in the dark is like the technically first Pink Panther movie, just not called Pink Panther. Exactly. It's, yeah. And, um, you know, he was, he was a very complicated um, kind of strange man, very funny, had a lot of um, phobias um he he didn't want anybody wearing purple around him or or green if i remember um very superstitious um but you know he was brilliant and and the the camaraderie that he and my dad had in the beginning especially was was very unique i mean they could you know my dad could say i need you to do such and such and peter would you know just be able to do it without you know hesitating and and they and and they laughed a lot. Obviously, um, you know, my my dad sometimes <laughs> didn't wouldn't want to ruin a scene, and you could see him like crawling off the set because he was laughing so hard, and didn't want to ruin the take. You know, um, but it but it became more and more complicated. And Sellers was uh, um, he was he was really kind of becoming crazy, and and it was tragic and and uh they didn't like each other toward the end and it was very sad but they made great movies together so in fact here's my my gold pink panther you're talking about it i wear it in honor of my dad <laughs> oh very nice you know i mean i'm wondering too growing up in this household i mean is your front door basically like a revolving door for hollywood a-listers i mean growing up like were you just having all these folks just walking to your door like it's a normal thing yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I, somebody asked me that kind of recently because um, I, I was, I can't remember how it came up, but um, 
somebody was talking about Sonny and Cher and whatever. And I said, oh, yeah, they used to come and hang out with my parents. And whenever I'd come home from from school or whatever and or a play date and, you know, it would be, you know, Cary Grant sitting in the living room or or Paul Newman. Yeah, that was a good one. When Paul Newman was in my living room. That was a good one. And, you know, Quincy Jones was over a lot. And I remember being like 13 and thinking, one day I'm going to marry that man. <laughs> I loved Quincy. But obviously that didn't happen. And so when you were little, did your dad take you on set a lot? Or did he kind of keep you separate from that part of his world? Um, the first set that we were kind of allowed to be on. Uh, well, no. Uh, yeah, I was on the set of What Did You Do in the War, Daddy? I was an extra. I, I was in the party scene. And that was that was literally like one day. Um, I was about eight years old. And then the next seven, maybe seven, uh, the next time where we were, my brother and I were allowed to be on set quite a bit was the great race. So 65, 66, something like that. Man, I know it's hard to think back to that time period as well, because you know, you're a little kid and memories might not be super clear, but do you, do you have any fond memories that day? Or can you remember anything from your time then? Uh, well, the first time, the first day that my brother and I were went, were on the Great Race uh, set was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, but there's a scene on an iceberg. Um, and I was just so kind of blown away by the fake snow and how the iceberg looked. And, you know, the, the whole, you know, special effects were just kind of blew my mind back then, you know, and it was, it was a, sort of like a, kitty playground that's a good way to put it i mean was it overwhelming for you to have this all this craziness happening no not really i mean it's you in know, your blood after all right <laughs> kind of and and you know all, all a lot of the kids that i knew or hung out with you know when i was younger they they all had famous parents as well so it just kind of seemed totally normal i mean tony curtis and jack lemon who were in the great race um, I grew up with, with Jamie Lee and Kelly Curtis and, um, and with Jack's son, Chris. And so it was just like being on a set with family, basically, you know, I knew Natalie, you know, RJ was in the first Pink Panther movie. So, um, I knew Natalie, you know, it just was kind of like being in my own living room in a sense. I mean, what a crazy living room this is to have. I mean, you just walk in and hey, look, there's Cary Grant, there's uh, Jack Lamb, and there's Tony Curtis. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah, no. <laughs> right. Well, you already mentioned this a little bit earlier here, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about this. Because, uh, you know, this was one of the cool things when I was doing research about you, was I found out about the Heidi Bowl. And you already kind of talked about Heidi a little bit here. So, um, you know, I am not of the age where I guess that was the thing that happened. I, so my first time reading about it, I was like, oh, my God, uh, this is the craziest thing ever. So uh, I would love it if you could just kind of educate my audience a little bit about what is Heidi Bowl exactly? And then we'll get into the film a little bit, but uh, tell us about the Heidi Bowl incident. Well, that, yeah, the Heidi Bowl for me personally is a little black cloud that follows me around. When Heidi first aired, it was, it, was a, it was a big deal because it was the first sort of movie for television. It was NBC um, and it was 1968. And they had really pushed it and, and promoted it, and, you know, TV guides and, you know, trailers on the television saying Heidi, 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 Heidi. So NBC was instructed um, that at seven o'clock exactly, no, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts, seven o'clock exactly, Heidi comes on. And it was during playoff 
football games and it was the Raiders and the Jets and um, the Jets were winning by something like 13 points. And at, and there was like three minutes left of the game. It was overtime, I think. And at seven o'clock um, sharp Heidi came on and in three minutes, the Raiders came back and scored two touchdowns and won the game and nobody saw it except people in the stands, obviously. And it, it caused just a, a huge uproar. NBC's phones, supposedly the whole switchboard actually blew up, caught fire because people were calling and screaming and yelling. People were firing guns in the street. Um, it, was, it was like mayhem. And, and 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 for years, supposedly NBC referred to their phones as Heidi phones. It became just, you know, one of the biggest, you know, upsets in TV history. And uh, and it changed television in terms of, you know, no game is ever preempted now by anything. You know, um, every football game gets to finish it out, whether it's, you know, overtime or whatever. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I actually received hate mail. I mean, it was I was ten years old, and I was, uh, and you know, it was it was weird. I mean, I was in London at the time, so I wasn't as um, aware of how big of an issue it was until like the next day. My dad called me and said, "You have no idea what just happened," um, and but I got hate mail, and it was just yeah, it was crazy like it was my fault you know and how about how old were you when that happened i was 10 well oh, okay. i was well i was 10 when i played heidi but i was 11 when you know by the time it aired i was 11 years old so i mean you already said i mean that's like a black cloud that's kind of been hovering over your career i mean i gotta just think about this for a second here 11 year old and you're getting all this hate mail all this death threats i mean how scared were you? Did you even want to continue acting? I and mean, how were you feeling back then? Well, I mean, as I said, fortunately, I was in, in England, so it wasn't as, as you know, prolifically, you know, um, I, I wasn't, it, it was, I wasn't hearing the, the discussions as much as if I had been in Los Angeles. So no, it didn't, it didn't deter me at all. It deterred my parents a little bit. Um, they kind of didn't, they saw how, um, people reacted and, and I mean, the, there were fantastic, you know, other positive things that happened from it. I mean, um, I got, it was, it was critically acclaimed. It was, um, the highest rated TV show. It, you know, a lot of good things happened from it. And, um, but I think my parents were worried a little bit. Um, and, and, asked, and cause I got a lot of offers after that. And my my dad in particular was like, no, you need to be in school and I don't think it's good for you and or good for any young person, basically. And so but I kept fighting for it. And then I finally, when I was about 13, he said, OK, let's I'll get you and see if we can get you an agent and whatever. And then I started kind of working more. So. Um, but, yeah, and I mean, it was an incredible experience. It, it taught me a lot. In, you know, in terms of being an actress and being on a set and working with, you know, Sir Michael Redgrave was my played my grandfather and Maximilian Schell played my uncle. I mean, the cast was phenomenal. It was John Williams's first movie as a as a composer. Um, you know, so a lot of good came out of it. So, 
And you know how I mentioned we have a lot of different Star Trek connections throughout your career, and one of those is actually in Heidi, because Gene Simmons is in this film. Oh, yeah, of course. Gene Simmons in an episode of Star Trek Next Generation. She was in The Drumhead, which is one of the most beloved episodes of Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, So, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, working with Gene Simmons. She was, she was, boy, one of the nicest, kindest, because I, there were, I was alone a lot for like eight weeks. I'm not completely alone. I had a nanny and, and, um, and there was a tutor and all of that because of my age, but my, my real mother wasn't on the set very much because my brother was in London and, you know, he was in school and, um, so she kind of took me under her wing sort of as the the mom because she her daughters were also back here and in LA and they were young and and um so she she and I had um at one point our hotel rooms were right next to each other and um before we would go to sleep at night she would the beds were you know we shared a wall so she would knock on, on the wall to say goodnight. And I would knock on her wall to say goodnight. And I mean, she just, she was just very protective and very kind and sweet. And I remember how, you know, I literally remember how she smelled. I mean, she, she used to just embrace me and hold me and she was, she was lovely. Everybody was lovely on that film, I have to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, she became like a surrogate mama, which was lovely. So Heidi really kicked down a lot of doors for you because at this point, you know, now your career is going. You're just in this huge, huge movie here. Uh, so, you know, business is about to pick up for Jennifer. So I'm curious, you know, along the way, uh, did you start attending any acting schools? I mean, did you start to pick up any formal training or or how what, how did this basically go along for you? Um, it wasn't until I actually moved back here and I started at a high school that actually is no longer uh, around. Uh, but it was a performing arts high school in Santa Monica, California. And, um, so there were, we, we would do, we would have class, we would have acting class and we would do plays and, um, all of that. So that was the first time I ever really had any kind of structural, you know, uh, acting courses. When I, when I got Heidi, my father said something to me as I was literally boarding the plane to go to Switzerland and at 10 years old and all, all by myself, um, he said, I want you to remember two things. There's no such thing as acting. It's all reacting and to listen. Um, and he kind of, you know, em- embellished that a little bit and said, you know, it's not just about listening to what the other actor is saying, which is obviously important, but you you react to things that, you know, like my dog is drinking her water bowl. I'm, I'm listening, I'm reacting to it, whatever that means. But it made those two things made the most sense to me and they still make the most sense to me today. There's no such thing as acting. It's all reacting and to listen. And that carried me through. And then I did, you know, I did several master classes. I was, I studied with Nina Foch from, like 1980, all through the 90s. Um, I, I studied with Roy London. I mean, I studied with a wonderful comedic um, um, teacher named Ed K. Martin. Um, you know, so I, I did do my due diligence in, in terms of classes uh, as I got older. 
I mean, those two lessons you got from your dad there early on, I mean, those are pretty huge things to learn and to understand, especially at a young age, because there's actors, you know, who are adults who don't even get that. You know, it takes them many, many, many years to pick that up. And you basically were told day one, here's what you got to do. And that's definitely one of the benefits of having someone like Blake Edwards as your father. I mean, that's got to be beautiful advice to have. It does help. (laughs) (laughs) But it's also then you you actually got to take those words and put that into actual practice. So, uh, you know, I guess let's kind of break down a little bit about how Jennifer Edwards acts. So, uh, you know, when you get that advice, you have that knowledge, you have that information. What do you do on set? How do you get yourself into a character? How do you take these lessons and make them reality? Well, for Heidi, for instance, and because that was really the first time, um, I just sort of put myself, because the relationship between Heidi and her grandfather is is basically the whole story. Yep. And I was very close to both my grandfathers, but, but um, my mother's father was actually sick uh he he had found out shortly before i went to do heidi that he had cancer and so i just kind of kept feel thinking about how i felt about him and kind of transferred it to sir michael a little bit if that makes sense and um and i and you know we had delbert mann was the director and he was an academy award winning director and and he was a lovely, lovely human. And he, he really kind of just let me be. And if there was something that he needed more of or less of or whatever, he would tell me and I trusted him. And, and it was, it was just a wonderful kind of experience, but I think I just put myself into, in, you know, I just identified if, if that makes sense. You know, throughout your career, you had the chance to work with your dad many, many times. And I want to talk about a few of those movies as well today. Uh, and I want to start things off with The Man Who Loved Women, which starred mm-hmm. Burt Reynolds. I mean, you talk about Cary Grant before, I mean, wow. But now you got Burt Reynolds. I mean, uh, temperature's rising in this room right now. Um, so, yeah, you've got <laughs> Burt Reynolds. You've got your stepmom, Julie Andrews, was in that. Uh, Kim Basinger, Mary Lou Henner. And, uh, hey, guess what? Another Star Trek name is there because we also got Denise Crosby in this film. Yep. So, yep. Uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what you remember from being on set for The Man Who Loved Women? Um, well, I, I, I had a great time doing that as well. Uh, first of all, that also was sort of like old home week because I introduced Kim Basinger to my dad. Um, I met her during SOB, which is another thing, uh, because one of the makeup men was her husband at the time. And, um, we all rented a house together. So I actually was a roommate and she, I think she'd done maybe one TV show or something. She'd done some commercials and I just kept saying, you've got to meet my dad. You've got to meet my dad. And I drug her down the beach one day um, and brought her on the set. And she was just, she was very, she's a very shy, very humble, um, absolutely stunningly gorgeous woman. And she kind of sat in a corner and I finally said, I drug my dad over and I said, you need to meet this woman. And of course, then she did like three movies with dad. But so Kim was on the set. I was also really, really, really good friends with Mary Lou Henner. And Denise Crosby was my sister-in-law at the time. She was married to my brother at the time. So once again, it was like, you know, just having fun with your friends on a set and, you know, and get getting paid for it. (laughs) So. And, um, and I, I love Bert. He was just so great. I worked with him on that and I worked with him on a TV movie as well. And he was just, he was hilariously funny and 
just, you know, an absolute comedic genius and, uh, and so kind. It was, so it was, it was fantastic. It was great. And I don't know necessarily if you have any stories you want to tell us about this film here, but I just kind of wanted to bring this up because there is, you know, again, we're talking Star Trek connections that you have throughout your career. And one of them is a film you did called That's Life, which was, again, directed by your dad. Uh, it starred Jack Lemmon, Julie Andrews, and uh, the Trek alumni we're talking about is also a former Trek Untold alumni who's been on this show. Uh, that's Dana Sparks. And I, I don't know if oh, you know if you remember Dana. Of course. I, we just had lunch like last you know, a few weeks ago oh wonderful yeah because she actually on the show told us a story about that you know being her first basically one of her first gigs on how blake basically you know how your father discovered her on the beach i think it was right so that that's just yeah, kind of fun to hear they were, they were neighbors she was when she, when she was married to her husband at the time they they were literally they lived right next door to my my parents so yeah one day she was walking on the beach and my dad you know, my, my dad was the man who loved women. Basically. <laughs> um, he, any, any attractive lady he would wanted, he wanted to talk to. Um, and he just went up to her and said, are you an actress? And she said, well, kind of, and I'm trying to be and whatever. And he said, well, I'm getting ready to do a, a movie and you'd be perfect for it. And, and I don't think he, I don't even think they, she auditioned, but that's life was an interesting project because it was the first time um my dad really wanted to make a quote-unquote family movie Hmm. um and um it was loosely based on on his life if you will he had just turned 60 or uh and he was having he was having struggles of you know being an older man and jack was jack lemon was playing that part and uh, there was really no script. There was a treatment. And so we would show up uh, every day um, and go through what he wanted the scene to be. Uh, and we basically would ad lib as actors. We would, we would just say whatever we felt would the scene needed. And the script supervisor would write it all down. And he would say, okay, that's good or let's put this in or let's do that and then it was like an improv it was amazing it was a great experience and um and then we would just shoot and um yeah but there was it once again it was like family because jack um my my stepmother obviously um the man playing my husband was matt latanzi who was married to olivia newton john who was one of my best friends (laughs) so Liv was on the set quite a bit and yeah so it was just really easy and simple and Chris Lemon played my brother and he was like a brother. So yeah. And my sister Emma was in it. Um, so it was, it was really, really fun. And so, you know, at this point now we kind of fast forward to you being an adult now and you're working with your dad, your dad is directing you and has, has directed you in many films. Uh, I know you also worked with your stepmom in several of these films too. Uh, so I'd love to know, I mean, what you remember from watching them work and in particular, things that you may have picked up or learned from seeing how they do things, how, how your father's directing, how your stepmom is performing. Did, did any of those things kind of, you know, come into your brain, come into your line of vision as you're working? Sure. I think there's, there's, it's impossible for things not to rub off, you know, with, with everybody that you work with to a degree. I mean, I've always felt that my stepmother is, um, everybody knows that she's a really good actress. Um, I think she's one of the greatest actresses and I'm not being, it's not because I'm her kid at all. I think she's um, 
she's done some amazing performances that a lot of times it could be because people have, have pigeonholed her a lot. Um, and um, some of the very dramatic roles that she's played and whatever weren't big successes uh, because they were not, you know, people want to see Mary Poppins all the time. I don't know. It's, it's a strange thing, but I think she's truly one of, one of the best actresses that, that of her, her age and, you know, that, that, that we have. Um, There's a reason why she's a dame. (laughs) Um, And um, I, you know, my dad, I always learned, you know, every time we worked together and sometimes when I would just, you know, go and visit a set that I wasn't, you know, um, working on. Um, I was just always amazed at one thing that he would do is because he wrote most of the things that he directed, he could, he could do, he could show up on a set. He would call, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, go on the set, five o'clock wrap um, because he already knew exactly where the camera was going to be for the next morning so as soon as he walked on the set, everything was completely set up. There was no downtime. Crews loved working with him because he, you know, it was an eight hour day almost all the time. And he, and he didn't abuse, you know, he didn't do take after take after take after take. He just, he was one of the first people too, who helped develop the video playback, which everybody now has. But at the time he was really the only person that was using it. So it was great because he would do a scene and then he would watch it on the video playback, be able to say, okay, we need to do this angle now, or that's great print. Let's move on. As opposed to going to what used to be referred to as dailies or, you know, um, which would be, you'd watch everything from the day before on, on a big screen and edit and all of that. And so, um, so he had very short work days uh, which everybody really appreciated. Um, but, you know, I learned things like, you know, William Holden working with Holden was um, amazing because he would do things like he would say to the cameraman, okay, so if I, what, what, what lens do you have on in the camp and the, you know, director of photography would say, well, it's a whatever. And so Bill knew that if he walked four spaces this way, he'd be out of frame. I mean, he knew stuff like that. That's brilliant. I still don't know stuff like that, but, but I had such, but it does make me now say, okay, how, where, where, where's my frame? If I go here, can you still see me? Um, You know, so that's, I mean, that's a a lesson learned, I guess, too. So. And, you know, in addition to not only performing with your dad, you guys also collaborated on a film, uh, which is called Just In Case, which uh, which I just found out about also you know, doing some research. It starred George Carlin and, again, another Trek Untold alumni, another person we've had on this show, which is Molly Hagan. She's also been on Trek Untold, and she was also in Star Trek. Um, right. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what it is like to now, you know, it's one thing to perform in front of your dad. What's it like now to basically be writing something together and just having that much creative work with him? Oh, that's, well, my dad always felt like, uh, he's, he always called himself a writer first. Um, cause he started in radio as a writer. And, um, even when he would write down, if, if he had to write what his occupation was, he was always writer. It wasn't director. He always 
you know, really felt more of a writer. Yeah, I came up with this. Um, I, I wrote this treatment. I had this idea and, and I, I wrote like a 20 page, you know, treatment and I took it to him and he's like, he said, I think this is fantastic. Um, let, you know, let me, you know, let's work on a, on a script, which we did. And, and I think in a couple of days we had a full on script and then he took it to Disney or, and they loved it. And the rest is history there too. And then I became, you know, Molly and I became very good friends. In fact, I just spoke to her a little while ago. She's, she is shooting in Austin, Texas, but we did a, we did a zoom recently and reconnected and yeah, she's great. Well, do say hello to uh, both Dana and to Molly. Tell them Trek and Toll says hello. We're still over here kicking. <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. And yeah, I, I don't know how I made it this far in this interview without even asking this question here, but what's your favorite Pink Panther movie? Oh, that is a tough one. That's the tough one. Yeah. There are bits in all of them that are just, you know, I... I, I, when I know that they're even coming up, I'm, I'm already giggling, but I think, I think shot in the dark, um, because it's sort of the first time that Clouseau is really introduced, um, probably shot in the dark or maybe return of the pink Panther, like the third one as well. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's so funny. I mean, it's, well, when we did the memorial for my dad, I, I spoke and um, um, I told a story, which is absolutely true of a friend of mine's friend is a orange County um, California highway patrol um, um, guy. And he's a huge pink Panther fan. And on his shotgun he actually has one of those gumby kind of pink panthers that can wrap around <laughs> it's literally wrapped around the shotgun in his squad car and one day he was on the freeway and he's pulled had to pull somebody over and the guy that he pulled over had a dog in the back seat and um he came up to the window and he looked in at the dog and he said to the guy does your dog bite and the guy sitting in the front seat looked back at his dog and he went, that is not my dog. <laughs> and I mean, it's like completely people can quote from this, these movies. They can, it's still, I think one of the funniest scenes actually of, you know, that my, that is not my dog. <laughs> um, and um, so I think everybody has little favorite bits from all of the different films, you know, um, so it's hard to, it's really hard to pin it down, but I think shot in the dark, probably. That's a good one. I mean, I'm always a little bit, uh, I think, I think you mentioned return of the pink Panther. That's also, I think probably my number one, but it's tough to pick. Um, cause I also have a soft spot for pink Panther strikes again, mostly cause I really enjoy Herbert Lom. Uh, so uh-huh. you know, another, another really amazing actor out there too. So yeah, it's hard to just nail down one cause they're all really great in their own ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, too. So you already mentioned a little bit earlier in this interview uh, that, you know, we we're going to talk about Go Ask Alice, which uh, I was able to actually find on YouTube. The entire film is on YouTube. Uh, so I got to see that William Shatner is indeed in this film in a bizarre outfit. And we got to add to this is actually a few years after Star Trek had just ended because that was uh, 1973. I think that that came out. So Star Trek had just wrapped up basically a few years earlier. So I guess Shatner is trying to find some new places to go. Uh, he has this bizarre mustache. I don't know if it's real or what was up with that, but it was okay. Yeah, not real. <laughs> I don't think it was real. 
I don't, yeah, I don't think it was. It really looked very awkward. awkward on him. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you know, that was, that was an interesting movie because it was, first of all, it was based on a true story. It was based on a, on a, a diary. And once again, it, we did, I was the youngest person. I was the youngest person. I was 15 and I was playing a 15 year old or 16 year old and all the other um, kids were in their twenties playing 15, 16. So, um, well, Bobby Carradine was like 17 at the time, but everybody else was sort of 20. And, um, um, we went to the director who was, this was his first movie movie. He did, did documentaries up until this point. And we all said, you know, the writing is not how we talk. Um, it was a lot of like far out and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and we just, we didn't speak like that. So he said, okay, basically ad lib, improv. So once again, we, I was the first sort of experience of, of just kind of, he just let us go. And, um, and of course, Shatner was much more, I mean, he, he wouldn't, he never, <laughs> whatever was written, he said, and, um, but he was, you know, he was lovely and, and you know, consummate professional and um, very kind. And yeah, so uh, it, it was it was a great experience. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series. Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces, like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Worf, Barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand-painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live, and that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine, and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17 going on 18 years. 
Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States, with a five-year survival rate that's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org. Thanks for your time. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, so Jennifer, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion here. Uh, So we are talking Star Trek The Next Generation, Season 5. The episode is New Ground, which is all about Worf and his son. Uh, So I'm curious here, you know, I'd love to know if you had previously auditioned for Star Trek before this. No, that was the first time I had auditioned. Um, First time, okay. Yeah, and I went in, um, (laughs) and it was one of those, I went in uh, with the casting person and the director and um, walked out of the audition. And I thought, Oh God, I just, yeah, blew it completely blew it. And by the time I got home um, on my answering machine was um, you got the part. So it just goes to show you how, <laughs> um, you know, you'd never know. Cause I, I didn't feel I did a good audition at all. Um, but I obviously did. And, uh, but it was, you know, when I went in, um, my agent said, you know, this, this is probably going to be a recurring role. And, um, you know, do you want to be tied into something like that? And, and I said, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 you know, my, as I said, my former sister-in-law, Denise, she'd done a year of it. And, and she's, you know, she said it was a fantastic crew, fantastic, you know, cast, all of that. So yeah, I was excited to go in an audition and then it, you know, it ended up not being a recurring role. Um, they, I, for whatever reason, they decided not to keep the kid on um, Worf's child on, on the show. So there wasn't a need for a teacher. <laughs> so what did you think of the very first time that you saw the set? Cause you know, you, you are in fact on board the enterprise for all of your scenes. So I imagine you got to walk through all the corridors, see all the different sets of the enterprise. Uh, had you, had you seen anything like that before? No, no, not at all. Um, I mean, I, I, the, the, I remember the first day of putting on my uniform and um, feeling just incredibly, um, I, I don't even know what the right adjective would be, but, but just, I was just embodied in, in this kind of um, treasured, series you know um and once i put the suit on it was like okay i'm i've landed <laughs> you know? uh, and um yeah the sets were amazing everything was amazing that you know 
Michael's wharf makeup and um, all of that. It was, it was just, it was great. And I see Brent Spiner all the time. I've seen him over the years, he and his wife and, you know, became friends and um, yeah, it was just, I, I felt very special being on the, on the set and everybody treated me very well. And as you just mentioned, too, it is a very Klingon-heavy episode because most of your scenes, if not all of your scenes, are with Michael Dorn and with Brian Bonsal as uh, Alexander. So, you know, you're with all these folks in heavy makeup in this case. Were you disappointed that you didn't get to be an alien and you didn't get to wear any prosthetics oh, like that? Or you were just happy to be uh, a human? Yeah, well, I did. I did. A, well, it was much later, but I did a, a, a horror movie, a Roger Corman movie uh, at one point, and that for the last maybe 30 minutes of the film, I look like Freddy Krueger. So I've done, I've done the, the prosthetic makeup and it's not fun. <laughs> it's not fun at all. So, um, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't think I would ever want to do it again. And I'm glad I didn't, you know, for that episode have to, I mean, I wouldn't have minded maybe a phantom of the opera kind of thing, but <laughs> the whole face. No, thank you. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, um, you know, again, we're talking about this episode here. What did you think of the material of the script itself? I mean, was this something that you had any connection to? Did you feel connected to it in any way? Or was this kind of, you know, another day at work? Yeah, I think it was another day at work. It was actually not that easy because I was saying things. There's one scene where I'm, you know, it's like a school outing, if you will, of, of you know, me teaching the class about different creatures and so a lot of what I'm saying aren't real words <laughs> and so that was kind of strange you know even even if you're playing a doctor and you're you know saying all these medical terms and whatever you you know what they are um I you know I was just saying words that were made up and but they had to be specific so it was it was hard to memorize them uh, it was tough. It was a little bit bit harder than I thought. And you were saying, too, how a lot of your career has been very much about uh, being able to improv and to kind of go with the flow of things. But with Star Trek, and we've heard this from a lot of other performers who have done this series, is that there's no room for improv. It's basically the script is what is there, and you have to just do that. That's it. So, I mean, did you find that to be difficult for you, just the fact that you had really no freedom around the words? Um, not Not in the other scenes, just in that one scene. Uh, like I said, because, you know, you everything had to be very specific about what I was talking about that, but it, that, yes, that was difficult. That one scene. And I'd love to hear a little bit more. If you have any stories about working with Michael Dorn and again, Brian Bonsell played Alexander Roshenko in this episode. Uh, how, how is Michael Dorn as a scene partner and how was he offset? I mean, I've heard he can be a little bit miserable when he's getting into that makeup. No, no, not at all. Uh, he was, he was great. And, and we, we would, we would see each other at, different places afterwards I'm trying to even remember. I mean, we became sort of friendly and um, no, he, he was, he was fantastic. I, I never saw him be miserable or anything like that. Yeah. He, and, but, it, and Brian, I didn't really see that much other than if we were in a scene together, because as soon as, as soon as, you know, with kids, you, they go, they have to go off to school or, you know, um, they don't have to rehearse that much necessarily if, if uh, um, you know, because they, you, they're only allowed to be on a set a certain amount of hours. I mean, I know because I was there as a, as a kid. So I would only really see him when we were literally doing the scenes. 
Now, on the days that you were there, I, I don't, again, I don't know how many days you were on set exactly, but uh, the I days mean, that you were there, uh, were you able to watch any other cast members work? I mean, were you able to interact with anybody else who was part of the main crew? Well, I interacted with everybody. I mean, LeVar and I sat, you know, we I think we sat out on outside the set a couple of days in a row, just sitting on, you know, out outside and talking and chatting. And um, I, like I said, Brent, Brent and I, I actually had known Brent from, he was a neighbor of a friend of mine. So I'd been at parties with him before. So, and I knew his wife. And so, yeah, we, we would sit like together at lunch and chat about people that we knew. And, um, but I don't remember necessarily watching other people's scenes per se. Um, you know, when I wasn't on set, I was either in my, you know, dressing room, my trailer and, and learning my lines. <laughs> yeah. yeah the, uh, we, we have a word that's called techno babble. That's, that's the official track term for it. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. For all the bizarre Star Trek nonsense, you got to spew out. Um, but <laughs> yeah. So, you know, are you the kind of person who will watch the things that they've done after they've done them? Like, you know, basically, did you actually go home? Did you watch this episode when it first aired? Yeah. Oh yeah. What'd you yeah, think yeah, of it? Definitely. Yeah. I, well, I thought it was fantastic. I was, I, I was, you know, kind of sad when I found out that they weren't going to bring the character back. Cause I, I, after, you know, a week, I sort of felt like I was, um, you know, like I had embodied, uh, Miss Kyle fairly well. And, and, uh, and I thought, I thought it was, I thought, well, I, you know, I, I'll share something. When I was at a, the Star Trek um, convention in Vegas a few years ago, um, a woman came up to me and she said um, that she was a school teacher. And she said, I have to tell you that your episode really helped me in a, in a situation with, with a boy in my class because of what, how you portrayed her. And, um, I was, I thought that that was one of the biggest compliments I think I ever could have been given for any role or, or even just life lessons that, that, that she somehow really identified with Miss Kyle as a school teacher. And so I thought, well, my, my job here is done. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's quite a compliment. Yeah. No, it was, yeah. I was really blown away by it. Now, I'd like to dig a little deeper here and see if you have any information about this part here. Uh, you mentioned how you might end up being a recurring character on the show. It didn't happen. But, I mean, how much did you guys talk about that? How much talk was there about bringing you back? And, like, did you get to know maybe or, or discuss any potential plot points for your return? No, I wasn't told really anything. I mean, all I knew was before I auditioned um, that, that my agent said this is this is a possible recurring. And like, like I mentioned earlier, that you know, she wanted to know if that was something that I would be willing to do. Uh, a lot of, a lot of my peers at that time who were film actresses really didn't want to be in TV. Um, now it's a whole different thing. Everybody's doing TV and cable and all of that, but at the time, so that's why I think she was asking me and I, I never had an issue with um, being on a series or doing TV or anything like that. So. Um, I would have been quite happy if it had, you know, panned out that I could have been a regular recurring character on the show. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's good. Yeah, essentially that you brought that up too. That's something I've noticed as I've looked at a lot of people's you know, IMDBs, of course, and talked to a lot of performers on the show is, you know, basically for the most part, you either did a lot of movies or you did a lot of TV. And uh, it seemed there, there wasn't much crossover. I don't know if you have any insight on why that is. Is there just some kind of like culture around that? Like, you know, don't do this if you do that at the no, time? No, I think, I think for, for the, for the peer group that I knew, it was more about, um, the reason why they didn't want to do TV at the time was being pigeonholed hmm. that they didn't want to feel they wanted to be able to do, a, you know, various characters and everything and not just be, you know, and then, and then, you know, if a series goes for a long time, you're, you're, you're identified with a specific character and they really didn't want to, to do that. Um, so I understood it, but I, you know, for them, but I didn't, you know, it didn't matter to me really. Work was work for me. <laughs> uh, did you ever audition for any of the other Star Trek shows after this? No. Mm-mm. So just one and done with Star Trek. You're happy to move on to other projects. Yeah. Not that I, not that I wouldn't have if I, you know, if they'd asked me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just assumed as well that, um, you know, when you do an episode and you play a specific character that it, there has to be a lot of time that passes because you're, you're recognized as one character. And then if you're playing another, I mean, maybe I should have done the makeup thing. <laughs> we have heard that before on the show too, where basically once they see your human face, you're kind of like burned in as that character. So if you wear a lot of makeup, you can come back as many times as you want. Just once you see your human face, then that's the, uh, the kiss of good, ba- uh, the kiss of goodbye, if you will. Right. Well, and also, you know, and and the Trekkie fans are very specific. I mean, I walked into an AT and T store a couple of years ago, and I, as I walked in the door, the guy behind, you know, the sales guy, he literally stood up and he went, oh, "Miss Kyle," and it was like, "What?" <laughs> that was such a long time ago, and but he, yeah, he was just a big Trekkie and knew who I was, and I don't. I mean, I get recognized a lot, but people don't know why they think they know me. Um, and, um, you know, and that's normal. Um, especially, I mean, I know that there are several things on cable right now, several movies that I'm in and, you know, so somebody could have seen something and then all of a sudden they see me, but, but that role in particular, everybody, you know, the Trekkies certainly know. So let's jump ahead a few years now. Let's go past Star Trek. You know, let's kind of talk about more modern times. And I know that you uh, have kind of gotten into the world of writing. I mean, you know, we, we know earlier that you got into do some writing with your dad. Uh, but you've worked on out some of your own projects as well. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the uh, in the literary world? Well, I had my first novel published uh, a few years ago. I'm really proud of it because I I've written screenplays before. Um, nothing really other than just in case um, I, I do have some, a producer really interested in, in producing a, a screenplay I wrote a couple of years ago. Now, I just thought, you know, I've always written since I was a kid, even stories and whatever. And I thought well, I'd be interested to to see what it feels like to write a, a book. Um, so I did. <laughs> I wrote a novel and um, and it was published and it, you know, it has four and a half stars out of five on Amazon and um, people really liked it. And, um, uh, and I'm working now on my second novel, which um, I'm about three quarters of the way through with it. Um, This one was harder for some reason. I'm kind of stuck right now, um, which, you know, that writer's block thing that we all dread. Um, But yeah, I, I mean, I, 
and I write lyrics. I, I write mute songs. Um, I've had several songs that have been um, that are out there. And my my fiance is a composer, and so I write. I'm his sort of Bernie Taupin, and he's my Elton John. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm always writing. Just to let our audience members know, what's the name of the book, and what's the elevator pitch for it? Um, it's it's called When Angels Cry. And it's about a divorced uh, middle-aged woman who goes home to live with her um, mother who's suffering from um, dementia. And it's sort of family secrets that all of a sudden are come out. It's a mother-daughter relationship. It's, it's also a sexual awakening of a, of, a, of a middle-aged woman who's written romance novels, but she, and she writes about these erotic you know, situations and whatever, but has never really had them in her life uh, personally, um, just in her mind. And, but now that she's a single woman, she's finding that she is, you know, very capable of having a nice, good sexual time and experiences. And (laughs) so it's, it's, it's a lot of things. People say that they laughed and they cried and um, it was when I, that's what I, when I originally thought I'd write a book, I knew it wasn't going to be the grapes of wrath or anything. So I, I thought, okay, what, what would I want to read if I was on vacation sitting by a pool with a cocktail? I, you know, I don't want, you know, things I, bashing over my head. I want to be entertained and I want to laugh and I want to be titillated and all that. And so that's, that's basically what, what, you know, my, trajectory was in writing this one so it's yeah it's called when angels cry uh and it's on amazon and barnes and noble i think too so we're gonna have links for that in the show notes so if anybody wants to pick it up we have a link for you You guys can do that go check out uh, the book by jennifer edwards so yeah so besides your your work there uh you know i'd like to kind of ask you a few more overall career questions and uh this one i always like hearing the answer to Jennifer, what would you say would be the best day you've ever had in a set? And what would be the worst or most challenging day you ever had on a set? Oh, that's, that's a good question. I immediately know what the worst day was, but I, let's see. The, the best day. Oh, okay. One of the best days was uh, during we, a, a fine mess, uh, the movie A Fine Mess. Um Howie, Howie Mandel and Ted Danson and I kind of became the three musketeers. Uh, but Howie and, Te- and Ted are also big pranksters, like my dad. And somehow I got involved in, you know, Howie would say, come on, let's do, we, one day we threw a, a firecracker in, in Ted's trailer, Howie and I. Um, and then Ted was like, he, he said to me, come on, let's do and Ted and I got a bag of dirt and we threw it in Howie's bathroom, you know, he being the germaphobe that he is just piles of dirt in his bathroom. Um, but, but one day Howie uh, stole a golf cart off the lot of the studio we were at and Ted and myself and Maria Conchita Alonso all took the golf cart uh, through Culver city, through major streets, <laughs> just driving around in this, golf cart you know and in in traffic and it was i mean it was kind of dangerous but it was fun and we laughed a lot so that was probably the best day just tons of laughter and um and we went on other people's sets we'd just drive up you know the ramp and visit other people's sets it was just silly um the worst day probably was on the man who loved women 
um, we were shooting in Houston and it was a scene with Bert and myself and Kim Basinger and, um, and a lot, and there were maybe 300 extras. It was a barbecue scene. And all of a sudden we could see on the horizon, not one, not two, but three twisters in the horizon. Oh, wow. Three of them. And it was basically, everybody was like every man for themselves. All of a sudden the rain started huge drops of rain. I've never been in a storm like this. And we were, these tornadoes were heading right at us. And a lot of the extras were older women with blue hair. And, but anyway, people are running for cover. And I uh, was told to run for Bert's bus. He had a big, you know, um, that was his dressing room and it was a bus. And um, as I'm running for it, uh, his driver is very, very slow, but the bus doors are open waiting for me. And everybody's going, come on, come on. Several people were already on the bus and the wind had picked up so much that it, it literally caught my knee and I was sort of sent in the air and then slammed back onto the ground. Um, and I, I fractured my, um, it was like L8. I fractured one of my vertebrae on my, my back. And um, yeah, the people on the bus said I, I literally was like three feet in the air before it, I slammed back down and we just took off on this bus. And at one point the whole bus literally went, you know, crossed like three lanes and it was, it was terrifying, but we got out of there. Thank God. But um, it was probably, well, because I, I hurt myself. I think that's probably why it was the worst day. That's quite a horror story to have. Yeah. I mean, that that's, yeah. that's a tough one to beat. That's for sure. From all the different horror stories I've heard in this show, that is a tough one to top. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but on a lighter note, I mean, since you brought this up, I can't let you walk out of here without asking a little more about this. You mentioned your dad was a prankster. So tell me about that. What, what did he do? Who did he prank? What, what's the worst, the worst he did there? <laughs> well, he, he would, the one thing in particular, he, he used to work with a, um, a stills photographer, which means, you know, most sets have a, a, a person who takes photographs, uh, stills of this, of what's going on in a scene. Um, and there was a wonderful man named Sherm Clark, who was his, my dad's stills man for, oh, I don't know, 30 movies, maybe. Um, and Sherm was um, very ticklish and um, very goosey, if that makes sense. My dad would go up sometimes behind Sherm and would literally just like pinch his butt. And Sherm would shoot like three feet in the air and scream. And, you know, and dad loved it. It made him, you know, it made everybody giggle. Um, but one of the things that dad had back in the day was, a, it's a, I think it's called, it was called hydrochloride. It's It's something where you can freeze if you're in pain. And my, my dad, my dad had broken his back and everything. He, and it was recommended that you spray it on and you can freeze, you know, the pain. And it's this long invisible stream out of, out of the container. And he would, he would shoot it at um, Sherm's crotch. Um, and you couldn't see it and Sherm wouldn't be able to see it. And within a few minutes, all of a sudden Sherm's crotch would be completely frozen <laughs> And, um, and he, yeah, things like that. He would, he would, uh, 
be known to do or um, he, oh, one time when he was working with Dudley Moore on the second film with Dudley, um, he put somebody, I don't know who it was, somebody was in an ape suit in the closet so that when Dudley opened the door, the ape jumped out in the ape suit, things like that. So basically, not only was your dad a genius, he was also an evil genius. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Jennifer, you know, we've talked about a lot of folks who've been in your life, uh, especially a lot of luminaries in Hollywood. Um, but just, just think of your life as a whole. This could be anybody. Uh, what's the most valuable piece of advice you ever learned or ever got from someone that you still think about to this day? I think, you know, the general feeling, and I'm trying to think who necessarily um, maybe said this, but somehow I think I always knew instinctively to be kind um, to, and what my dad said about listening, but not just, not just when you're on camera, but to really listen to uh, people on and off the set, be a good listener. Um, and, and, you know, humility, I think is, is, what ultimately is important. Um, I'm not sure um, if I had any, I mean, I had, interestingly, I mean, people like Cary Grant said to me at one point, I probably was like 17 or 18 at the time. And he wanted me to talk his daughter, Jennifer, out of being in the business. And I, and I said, but why, if, if that's what she wants to be doing, um, so, so there were a couple of Ryan O'Neill did the same thing with me about trying to convince Tatum not to continue being in the business. And so if, if anything, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, improving here. <laughs> um, I think it was more about just understanding that um, if, if you have that drive and that, you know, it's, it's my DNA, basically, to, to be in this business, um, that nobody should try and convince you otherwise. So I know that wasn't specifically what you asked, but because um, I don't know anybody in particular that have said anything that really made a, a difference in how I feel and felt uh, being an actor. Um, I was just always, I think I just always was very um, uh, aware of my surroundings. And, um, you know, you, you work with somebody like William Holden. I mean, you know, there's nothing better. <laughs> um, you learn a lot in six weeks from somebody like that. All right. So, Jennifer, last question for the day here. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, I, well, it has to be the fans, you know, I, I mean, it, it's, it's really extraordinary. They're so dedicated. They're so, I mean, when I did the, the convention, I was, I was amazed at how kind they are. Um, and just they they, and so appreciative. They were so grateful to, to meet, you and and to be around you and that kind of thing and I, I I don't know I mean I did the Star Trek or sci-fi convention in England right before right before COVID actually the lockdown it was the same thing even even the European um, and the English you know uh, fans are 
are just, they're so grateful. And uh, I don't know that in any other uh, genre um, it's, it, other than the, uh, the Trekkie world. I think, that's, I think that's what's the most impressive thing. And I was grateful to, for, to them for being grateful. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, too, I've got one last request for you. Not a question, but a request. That's, uh, can we get your daughter's agent to find a way to get her onto one of the new Star Trek shows so we can get another Edwards on a Star Trek show? Oh, actually, well, you can, you can, you can reach her through WME. Her name's Hannah Blake, um, and she's quite extraordinary. Uh, yeah, Julie Colbert. She doesn't really have a, a consistent agent. She's a professional dancer as well, and and um, she just did the Tyler Perry movie. And um, but yeah, um, you can that she Julie works with Hannah if if somebody's interested. Well, let's find a way to make that happen. Uh, that'd be yeah. cool. You know, Star Trek always uses dancers too. They always need contortionists and folks who can move and bend in alien-looking ways, right? So sure. there's got to be a way to make that happen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Sounds good. So yeah, Jennifer, again, thank you so much for chatting with us today, telling us a lot of great stories about your career, uh, especially about your, your father. Uh, I love hearing those stories. And more, more importantly, folks, again, a reminder, check out Jennifer's book on Amazon, which is When Angels Cry. We're going to have links for that. So make sure you click it, give it a buy, check it out. Uh, Jennifer, thank you again so much. It's been real wonderful to chat with you today. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. And thank you for checking it out. One more time, if you're not following us on social media, please do so by checking us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And that's all one word, no spaces on any of those platforms. If you want to check out the video version of this podcast to see our guests, head over to youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, where I post the video version of this show every Sunday after the initial episode airs on Thursdays. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing. If you're in a position to financially support Trek Untold, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash trekuntold to become one of our Patreon supporters. There's a lot of cool perks that you can get by becoming a Patreon supporter, including early access to the episodes, the ability to ask our guests questions, and a lot more cool stuff coming very soon. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes or any other audio platforms that you listen to the show on that allow you to do so. Or if you're one of our YouTube audience members, please make sure you comment on this video and give it a thumbs up and don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Special thanks to Scott Ray for providing us with this week's guest. If you'd like to book them for an autograph signing or convention appearance, email scott at scottray67 at aol.com. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.